0: Good evening, everyone. And thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler and joining me as always is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact-futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. So Thomas, you and I just wrapped up a fascinating and wide ranging interview with with Alan Farrington and Sasha Myers, who are the authors, the co-authors of this excellent book, Bitcoin is Venice, that's made something of a stir in the crypto community. I thought that the, the conversation was just fantastic. It's one that I've wanted to have for a long time. How did you feel about it?
1: Yeah, they came at this from a number of different angles that uh, are new and refreshing. So I, uh, I, I found it absolutely intriguing. And, um, and we asked some some good questions to kind of challenge their assumptions and challenge where they they were coming from. And, uh, so they were, they're very uh, uh, articulate in how they uh, approached the answers.
0: Yeah, um, that's true. So after we wrapped recording, they were talking about how they're not sure they invented anything with a book or they actually innovated. It's mostly Uh, a recombination remix of prior ideas that you can find in classical economists like uh, Carl Menger or Hayek or Mises but uh, they they connect it in lots of very interesting ways they connect it to this new technology called bitcoin and they extrapolate that into the future to imagine how it might change the financial system how it might change things like social capital and on the whole I think that's that's all very valuable stuff That, that remix and reinvention is very important work
1: yeah and they did a good job i think of challenging the listeners to uh new concepts and um so uh, i presented them with the analogy that um uh, that the iphone is to the telephone industry what bitcoin is to the the money industry and uh uh i thought their answer was quite fascinating so with with that i Invite everybody to listen to this and find out what their answer really was.
0: Hope you guys like it. Tonight, we're joined by Alan Farrington and Sasha Myers. Alan and Sasha are both investors in traditional finance who draw heavily on philosophy, history, and economics to understand Bitcoin, how it is evolving, and how it will likely change the world in the future. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, FuturatiPodcast.com. Guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Let's hear a little bit about your respective backgrounds, your interests, and what brought you to working on uh, the projects you're working on today.
2: Cool. I think actually Sasha should go first because mine is like the same up to a point. (laughs) Oh, right, Just fork
0: off the Sasha branch.
1: Yeah,
2: and then we, yeah, then we
1: forked. (laughs) Was it a hard fork? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was
2: very soft
3: fork. (laughs) Okay. Cool, yeah, so I'm Sasha and my background before uh, my career where I met Alan was uh, studying environmental sciences. Then uh, we, uh, Alan and I joined a an investment firm. I've been working there for seven years. Alan's now doing his own thing and he's been doing that for a few months. He'll talk about it himself. Um, really my, my interest uh, has been and continues to be around understanding capital in its varied forms. So not just the financial monetary form that people will be familiar with, but trying to extend that notion of capital as a potential energy of production, something that we can use to make things that are useful to us and try and really understand the, the different ways in which uh, that model can be applied. So that's something I've been quite interested in developing, especially in the book. Yeah, we we will be coming back to that. Um, Alan, how about you?
2: Yeah, so I'm Alan. Uh, I studied math and philosophy uh then as Sasha mentioned met him in my uh first and now probably only ever adult job uh investment management firm um, i left a couple of months ago now yeah to start up my own uh bitcoin business basically um which we cool. we might go into a little i mean it's a little tricky because there's not there's not that much i can say about it because it's not public yet i i assume by the time this podcast comes out it would probably wouldn't have made that much progress with it Um, but it it does touch on a couple of the ideas that are in the book. Cause when, when we were finishing the book, which is a very lengthy process, I'm sure we'll talk about that too. Uh, the very end of writing the book was the very beginning of the idea for this business, (laughs) uh, and so there was a little bit of overlap there. So once it is like more well-known people might be able to go back and be like, ah, that's, that's what he was talking about.
0: Yeah, we, uh, we we're going to talk about the book right now, but actually, I think this episode is going to come out in like six or eight weeks. So if you can get it off the ground in six oh, weeks. Maybe, then uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Right. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. So I did want to talk about the methodology behind the book, because I think that, you know, one thing that struck all of us as we read it was how er- erudite it is and how many different sources and ideas you two draw from. Uh, and and so I wanted to know whether or not you two had this kind of vague idea that there might be a connection between Bitcoin and like urban planning and Renaissance Italy, or if you're just the sorts of, of gentlemen who sit around reading, you know, obscure out of print books about urban planning and Renaissance Italy and, and soil science and, and all this other shit. And then it's like, oh, we, we could actually uh, make something out of this. So walk us through the development of it.
2: I, I mean. I have a take on this that may be completely different from Sasha's. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure. I almost feel like it'd be better if Sasha just dropped off the call. I answered, and then he came back. <laughs> he came in. Uh, no, but my my take on it is that like we we know we've been I think fairly upfront about this. It even says in the introduction how unusual the writing process was for the book in that first of all a lot of it was written as standalone pieces first anyway and then we later thought oh we could actually maybe tie these together a bit more and extend some of the thinking um the the time at which we had that thought though was lockdown when we had absolutely nothing else to do or not even, well we had a lot else to do it was illegal to do anything at all other right, right. than sit inside and read and write um and i think that itself catalyze something that had maybe we've been building for a while which was not only had you know some portion maybe like half or so of the content had been written already and and it didn't need to be adapted but like the core ideas were there i think the fact that we we had this sort of push to start getting all this stuff down on paper in the book uh was super helpful because it it what it pushed us to do was actually crystallize what we had been talking about for like five years. So I like, honestly, it's going to sound really weird. I'm sure probably very few books are written this way, especially because this was co-authored, right? So like Mm -hmm. most of the time, you wouldn't even have the opportunity to do this. But a lot of the writing was finding old, Chats like digging up old email threads where you know we really should have been working but we're actually just like bantering about <laughs> what is capital um right. and so it was, it was a very unusual process i don't think we could repeat it if we tried it was highly circumstantial uh but yeah i mean I, i'm happy with it at least so now let's hear sasha's experience
3: i would say that our book like any successful medieval city was very much a bottom-up organic <laughs> enterprise It's an emergent order
0: from just (laughs) longstanding chat logs from two uh, uh, DeFi degenerates who should have been working.
3: Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) you've talked about the different things that we discuss in the book, and that really owes more to our general interests in different things and the way in which we like reading and then discussing these ideas forming that into a coherent narrative is only something that we started realizing could be done as it was being written so we started really with essays as alan said and then strings of essays were written in a way that articulated our thought process at the time as well it's not just that we have a master plan that we're going to execute we're really thinking as we go and we're trying to link that to whatever came before and might come after that whole creates a book uh that we then of course were able to pad and add to once we had a better understanding for what the book might look like as a whole and once we decided yeah okay we've got enough here to create a book then yeah it's it's about being a bit more strategic and saying maybe we need to 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 read a few more books about uh the venetians or or yeah. the, the the medici but that does that does come later it comes after just a general interest from, from for medieval cities and
2: um the way capital accumulates
0: that's
3: fascinating yeah it's, it's a book about medieval
0: cities and how capital accumulates that's it
2: so yeah it's, it's if, not at all a book about bitcoin by the way it's worth just getting that that blatant fake news out the way up front. <laughs> well actually i just think you. of that as being like genius clickbait really
0: <laughs> so I saw that I was like well I can't not read that what, what the hell does that mean um yeah so um it, it's it's the one weird trick for like really bright people who are like far out on the on the right end of the bell curve uh, and now I know authors tend to hate this sort of thing especially authors that work in such a bottom-up uh collaborative way but I mean if, if you had like two or three core insights you are going to try to TikTok this uh and we might TikTok it by the way uh <laughs> Yeah, like this might go on TikTok. <laughs>
2: You're going to have a dance that goes along with our
0: answer. <laughs> we always have a dance. There's an intro dance. Yeah. So, do you have uh, do you have sort of like a, a press release version of this that, that you would want to communicate if somebody's not going to read it, mm. but they might be interested in the ideas? What would you say? Because I can think of like five yeah, or six I, that are plausible.
2: You know, I feel like we probably should be able to just rattle this off off the top of our heads. I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, so something like. So capital is not money. They are importantly different, but importantly related, right? They're not completely distinct from one another. Um, they are the way in which they are related is to do with properly communicating value, and that that, once you grasp it, extends well beyond economics. Uh it, it obviously applies to economics, but it also, you know, notions of value can mean a lot more than just price. Um, and that the way I it's not it doesn't have nothing at all to do with Bitcoin. It does mention Bitcoin quite a lot. So even that was kind of <laughs> it is news, in the, title. The, the way it that is we the then title. do link it to Bitcoin <laughs> is that the the truer the signal it with which you're communicating value, the oh, how would you put it the the better and more healthily everybody is able to communicate in the first place and plan and grow (laughs) i suppose uh yeah i think that's pretty good i don't know sasha how would you would you either add to that or just, just ignore all that and start again
3: no i'd add say that in order to accumulate wealth you need to be able to collaborate And to to be able to collaborate, you're going to need a tool to do that at scale that no central party can tamper with. That leads you to Bitcoin.
0: I I really like that. Yeah, I really like that. Why, why, Why is the untamperability of it
3: so important? So it really gets back to the idea of how you think capital accumulates in the first place. If you do believe that a central authority can, by decree, come to an understanding of what needs to happen, you can absolutely go down the line of saying that you need tampering in the sense that tampering is the planning, which will lead to the desired outcome. If on the other hand, your understanding for accumulation of capital is that of a system where decentralized individuals collaborate willingly and through iterative trial and error come to understand more and more about their lived environment and experience so that they can they can through understanding what works what is true build something that is of value to each other if that's your understanding of capital then you cannot have a central authority that starts to tamper with it because by definition the accumulation of capital is a system that requires effective communication between individuals that none of whom have a master plan for the whole community this is very hayekian it, it seems like it, it could plausibly a yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: continuation of fa hayek's work so why is the um i mean i have some guesses but why why is capital some sort of like communicative mechanism i mean it seems that like you could tie that in with price theory you could tie that in with a couple of other things
2: i wouldn't say capital exactly as I just say the prices are mm, right um yeah and it was it's, it's good that you actually just mentioned hayek because I'm thinking do we have anything to add to him <laughs> probably not I think I think where we the, the the odd places in the book where we I think maybe do say something original is more extending the understanding of what even counts as capital I think I think that's part where we or the yeah. parts of the book where we had the most fun in the first place, um sort of teasing out that it's it's not just an economic issue, right? It's that mm-hmm. the same, the same rough concerns that you would have. You know, you can here's maybe a, a more interesting way of putting it. You can frame what would normally be talked about as purely an economic problem, um, or an economic issue even it doesn't need to be a problem necessarily, but you can, you can describe it with non-economic terms and and frameworks and so on um that are very obviously extended to other realms uh but the, but which are perfectly accurate in that setting so i mean sasha's already done this i think in his previous answer talking about uh communicating and planning and and you know intent and all that kind of thing rather than just you know trading and prices but but ultimately our our argument i guess is it's the same thing it's all about um it's all about accurately communicating what individuals value
0: why is it that prices alone are not enough for that
2: what do you mean well so
0: (laughs) no no no. well i no i i mean maybe you didn't so so maybe you'd say no they are they're just fine they just have to be accurate so that could be your answer I, i don't know so is that your answer that like prices work fine if they're left free to function i mean i remember in the earlier third of the book, su- statements mm-hmm. kind of to that effect that if you leave prices alone then they can coordinate economic activity this is the core inside of price theory right That the, how mm-hmm. prices coordinate economic activity so so maybe that's just your answer that it's, it's i think fine it
2: may, if- maybe there's there is some interesting nuance there uh, around like price alone isn't everything i wonder if maybe this is what you were getting at that <laughs> it's almost like the, I don't know, the least bad option or something like that. It's, it's the, the untampered with price is the best reflection of the, tr- the crowdsourced truth to the extent the contributors to the price actually believe whatever they're doing that affects the price in the first place. Yeah. So, but there is an interesting wrinkle there and that that doesn't mean that it's true, right? It's not like objectively, the best reflection of you know whatever the underlying reality is it's it's the best per how everybody contributing to it has acted and and you would guess is therefore is willing to act um but there's there's i am i'm even kind of struggling to articulate this well i think because i'm dancing around that value is subjective i think that's basically what ties all of this together as kind of a, a nice little truism almost right that price is objective you can observe the the price at which a trade takes place and you know it, it kind of has a reality if you like right, right but right. it's the very low well one dimensional i suppose reflection of a an incomprehensibly complex uh subjective reality that everybody experiences in their own and hence you know i think that this is like this is what this is obviously right back to Hayek, right? This is why prices are so useful that it's it's absolutely not possible for anybody to effectively communicate their subjective value in you know how they experience it, right? Uh, but you can communicate it with your actions in the market, and then that gets distilled as price, and and that's extremely easy to communicate because it's just one number or one one number, right? or everything everything will have its own price, I guess, but for everything that. It would be useful to have a price. There is only one, and you don't need to sit around talking about how you feel.
0: Yeah, that's a. Go ahead.
1: <clears throat> yeah, let me let me come at this from a really weird other angle
2: here. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so whatever so, you're about to say will make it into the second edition for sure.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. So somewhere back in ancient history, there was a there was an archaeologist that was digging up stuff in these ancient cities, and he came across this object, which ended up being the original Bitcoin, which was he dug it up and it was let's we'll call it Bitcoin Alpha and he dusts it off and everything. And then we we started endowing Bitcoin Alpha with all these attributes to make it um, uh, what it is today. Um, and we're we're still trying to figure out what all attributes it should have to make it the ideal, both currency and store of value and uh, tool for commerce and as as it turns out this archaeologist that was digging up stuff was actually satoshi nakamoto because he's lived for centuries and uh and so this is kind of the legend of bitcoin as it's forming in our minds at this moment it, am i getting it right
2: hmm. <laughs> I mean I don't want to say you're getting it wrong but I'm not really sure
1: what, like what that captures exactly. All right. Yeah, well we're 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 still trying to figure out where Bitcoin fits in society. We're we're still trying to figure out how it's going to evolve and what changes are going to take place over the coming years to make it more useful and more adaptable mm-hmm. and um and serve us in the long term is is that correct
3: oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. so i think there's something interesting here to go back to with your your image of uh uh, satoshi digging uh bitcoin alpha thousands of years ago and it's that i don't think you would know it was bitcoin alpha when you dug it up because it requires experimentation to understand what proper money should have as characteristics. It's through trial and error, I might say it's through capital accumulation, a form of knowledge accumulation over time, that you will eventually come to that understanding. It's through different societies using different means of collaboration, using different ways of communicating, some of which will be uh, simply oral. Maybe it's about IOUs and that people rem- remember, but maybe that doesn't scale to such an extent that at some point you're going to need to use some form of physical object or maybe it's a a ledger that you're gonna write things on some sumerian tablets whatnot eventually you find the technology you find the bitcoin alpha that you dug thousands of years ago yet, yet you didn't know at the time was going to be money it just turns into money through that natural adoption of trial and error and without all of that experience, Satoshi inventing Bitcoin, not Bitcoin Alpha at this time, um, would not have been able to come up with the required char- characteristics, hmm. right? It required thousands of years of experimentation to know what were the desirable characteristics of money to then say, let's code those and then let's use that going forward.
1: Okay, that's Isn't good.
3: It?
0: That'd be great. Yeah, to- that's way better than what I said. It'd be a great premise for like a a fantasy story of some kind. You dig up Bitcoin Alpha Mm -hmm. and then you sort of get it going, you know, and and, uh, see what the consequences of the civilization are. I Mm -hmm. want to get into this question of capital because it's just I, I think it's come up every other sentence or so uh I I remember reading those parts of the book and and you know highlighting parts of it and like arguing in the margins Uh, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that capital is potential energy I think that's a really useful framing of it but I'm aware that some economists are somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of like human capital it's it's not quite the same thing or like social capital it's not quite the same thing so they can you just tell me how you think about capital Hmm. theory generally and um yeah the different kinds of capital
2: that you see like, I mean, like why we
0: should think of it that way why does that mean actually
2: I haven't encountered much pushback to the way that we've the way that we articulate it so this is actually kind of interesting um the, the I think the first thing to mention is that that's not at all our uh that, that we've used that expression a few times the uh, economic potential energy that comes from Hernando de Soto oh, uh, okay. I think probably most of what we say is <laughs> hopefully we do cite it appropriately. We're we're you know we're not trying to steal any of these ideas, but um, I think very little of it is actually original. It's maybe just the combinations of it are, are original, but um, I mean, I would, Trent, maybe you wanna go into a bit more detail about what you mean there, but I would definitely push back on the idea that, yeah, human capital, let's say, is materially economically different from, say, I just a, a machine right like that's probably the most obvious kind of tangible capital mm-hmm. i'm, I'm going to try to not argue this circularly so i'm not just going to say well because it has economic potential energy but sort of actually <laughs> tease out because we defined that it that way, way so that it would that work in the first place that <laughs> if, if by human i mean i get that for example maybe this is part of the concern that with something you would classify as human capital precisely because it's so intangible You can't, you certainly can't measure it in the same way. You can't observe that it's there. It's a lot more difficult to account for, I guess, and like, as as in Mm -hmm. accounting, right? You can like, much more difficult to put it on a balance sheet, I suppose. Um, Maybe that would lead you to be more suspicious as to what exactly its productive capacity is, I guess. But to me, these are like, these are kind of trivial problems as opposed to the more. I suppose fundamental issue as to as to whether it's there, like wh- how easy it is to measure is not the same thing as does it right. exist. And to me, I'd be so once you kind of got those potential hiccups out of the way, I would very strongly push back that there's, there's really any difference whatsoever because um, I would say both are. Um, I'm I'm really struggling to not be circular here. So <laughs> both are the product of people having decided not to consume but instead invest time and energy building the means of producing far more to consume in the future and it shouldn't really matter whether that has physical manifestation or not i don't think i mean aside from anything else a lot of consumption doesn't have physical manifestation so what like that ought to make it even more questionable why that matters
0: that's, that's a very interesting angle on it. Yeah. So you've got roundabout processes of production, which is Bernd Bovert's, you know, great insight that roundabout processes of production mm. can actually be far, far more efficient uh, in the long run than, than something more straightforward. You know, so I mean, you can walk out your front door and start digging in the ground with your hands, or you can take two weeks to build a shovel, like, which is going to ultimately end up, you know, serving you better. It's the second one, even though it's less direct. And yeah. I think you're right. It, you know, it's you not- know, the joke
2: with Milton Friedman about this, by the way,
0: uh, so I don't know yeah. if it's actually
2: real or not. It might be a problem. He said it in Chile,
0: right? He said, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. Go ahead. You, you,
2: you so, so Milton Freeman goes to some, uh, like, building site or something. And um, he, he notices that there's uh, there's very little heavy machinery. And he asks oh. the foreman. This is almost certainly not true now that I'm saying it. Out loud. He, but nonetheless, he, he asks the foreman, like, why do you not have any, you know, like, why, why is there no, like, big, heavy machines here? Why is everybody just using a, a shovel? And and the form was like, oh, well, you know, we figured this is like a, this is a government sponsored thing, right? So we we give people a lot more jobs if we if we do it this way, and uh, and then Milton Friedman says, well, you know, you could hire way way more people again if you took away the shovels and you just gave them spoons. Right, right,
0: yeah, I believe he was in Chile <laughs> when he said that. It was when he uh, was was considered. Oh, so it with- is real. I think so. Well, so I've heard. I've heard that story too. And the way I heard it, he was in Chile consulting with the the new Pinochet uh, regime, and and he, he okay. made some quip kind of along those lines. Who knows? I mean, let legends grow. You know the so so. Actually, we we just invented one in this call. So you know who knows how actually true it is. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, I'm very sympathetic to that point. That around about production process or the act of postponing consumption to invest in some sort of structure that will ultimately yield more production in the long run Mm. does not necessarily have to be tied to a machine or something physical. If you're Mm. interested, if it's something you want to chase down, I can try to dig up the reference. I was remembering a podcast, which I think was with Tom Woods, who was interviewing like an economic historian who kind of got into this so it's one of those like i remembered it from two years ago sorts of things um so maybe it's this one lone voice that's been long debunked i couldn't tell you for sure if it's like i said if, if it's something you want to follow up on I, I can try to facilitate that but i just thought i would flag it uh, as a potentially interesting point mm-hmm. of conversation
3: yeah sure i think there is one thing i was that, that came to mind um as as you were talking and it's maybe the pushback that some people have around quantifying capital and saying that some forms of capital are so valuable and so intrinsically worthy that you shouldn't soil that with the grubby financial world so you can think of Mm -hmm. social capital in terms of the way in which your maybe your family relationships are important to you or your community or your environment we talk a lot about the value of the environment so obviously when it comes to something like a river or soil that's not something that people have actively worked to create I mean it was there before we can then make it more useful to us we can try and preserve it right but there is a sense in which these things are beyond ourselves so sometimes I think there is a pushback around well do you really want to put monetary values on everything around you and I don't think that that's the argument that we're making right. either. We're saying that yeah. money is a way of communicating that is very helpful, even when it comes to sometimes touching these much more intangible forms of capital. But that doesn't mean that we should put a, a monetary value on how much you value, how much you love your mom, you know, or, or, or how much. What's mom worth? worth much, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. That, that's
2: not, you just shouldn't. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah what's more you know what's more valuable your 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 parents or the rainforest and you have to choose like it's th- this is not the kind of thing that we're talking about where we are saying that money is a, is a is a very effective way for people to communicate and it's not the only way in which we communicate right this is a form of communication there are plenty of ways of doing this um politics is another one uh, violence warfare that's also a form of communication that there are more or less desirable ways to communicate money when done well is a very effective forms of form of communication for many things and it allows us to collaborate in a way that's very helpful for the accumulation of plenty of forms of capital but that doesn't mean that we need to turn everything into a monetary value
2: Mm -hmm. yeah I I actually I, I build on that a little bit um because I think there's a kind of a I'm not sure if it's quite a paradox i might be misusing that but it's certainly uh a seeming um contradiction that is is difficult to get like it's very unintuitive it's difficult to get your head around particularly with respect to exactly these sources of capital sasha mentions that we feel uncomfortable putting a value on that that actually we do go into this a little bit in the book we don't i don't think we really dwell on it for all that long though that it's precisely when you, uh w- when money breaks, or when money dies. So that's a good, <laughs> good. Uh, yeah, they make a great book. There. Precisely when money dies, that you have to start thinking about doing that more seriously, right? And it's, it. I think really what all this is testament to it's it's yeah, as Ashley's right. It's very much not that oh, we want to put a value on everything, like we want to price everything. Mm-hmm. It's more that just instinct well, instinctively isn't even the right word it's 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 deeper than that it's kind of per every individual's subjective value they will actually value everything in some or other way they may they may not decide to express that with money probably for a lot of things and that's that comes back to exactly this tension that for some things that will feel uncomfortable but the less access to let's say properly priced capital, they have and the more impoverished and desperate they become the more they'll actually be forced to start to think about the price of things that they would rather not price at all so it's uh yeah I think that that hopefully reinforces you know makes the case even more strongly that we're very much not at all in favor of like pricing the rainforest or or how much you love your mom but (laughs) it's precisely if you do value if you value those things so much that you don't want to think about the price you should care about capital and money even more to ensure that you don't ever have to
0: that's that's a really interesting take on i hadn't considered that before it's 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 when you're starving to death that you start thinking like well, maybe it's now the time to, you know, sell a child because they'll starve yep. otherwise. Yep. Like, like they will die guaranteed. Or, yeah. or I could sell them and maybe. This is
2: why you should read when money dies. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. I've got, got it about. over there. exactly. I don't think anyone sold their kids, but they came close.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I think, and I'd be interested in getting your your feedback on this. Maybe this is driven in part by the sort of hysterical attempt to formalize everything in economics with mathematical models and Mm -hmm. part of what I think draws people to Austrianism is that it's far more humanizing like like Mises explicitly defends the private property order the monetary order because it not only maximizes the sorts of economic decisions people can make but also the non-economic decisions people can make like where they choose to live to be close to family or something like that these are not things you would necessarily put a price on although there's an opportunity cost you could probably you mm, know, probably could price yeah. it right but, but you know yeah. people make decisions for reasons just beside the monetary you know remuneration they can expect and that that matters too and that that can be captured by economics if perhaps not in an actual
3: formal model mm-hmm. yeah almost, that's a
2: super interesting oh, sorry go on, inside i was gonna say it's
3: almost like there is a meta price there's a price on how much you're willing to yeah. price things <laughs> right? oh that's interesting <laughs> and, and and the the richer you are or the more resources you have the higher that price becomes as in you're less and less likely to put a price on things that you really value simply because you're able you have the luxury of saying no 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 we're going to take all of that land yeah. and we're just going to fence it and it's going to be a nice park all right it could be it could be housing but we're just going to enjoy that and that's not something that you're able to do um uh, when yeah mm. when it's it's hand to mouth
0: when 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 you're rich yeah. enough, the marginal value of an additional dollar drops enough that you can afford to consume something like a park in the form of luxury and just like set it aside as a reserve because it's beautiful yeah. and people like it, right? Just to
2: Trent, could I build on actually both of these points? So um I think exactly the the well, let's call it Austrianism. I, I think it goes a little bit beyond Austrianism, but that's a really good, it's a helpful starting point for sure. The the Austrian attitude of uh, first of all, is skewing macro uh, quantifications of of economic behavior, um, and secondly, it is obviously related, but it, it I think is a little bit distinct. Um, taking well human action basically, but uh, individual uh, subjective value as the sort of starting point for for all uh, for all economic activity. I think both of those as methodological approaches make perfect sense of exactly what Sasha just described. Uh, In so as you're, if that is your starting point, you're not at all confused by the way people actually behave when they do these things, right? Whereas if your starting point is something, you know, you're uh, Trent. You you started off the question by saying, um, I, I forget, I'm not going to quote you exactly, but, you know, the, the fascination with, um, know putting a number on everything right and Mm -hmm. yeah and modeling everything right that if you want to try to do that you you basically can't if you're if if you look at the austrian starting point of you know people will uh, people will behave in order to achieve whatever ends they value like you just that's you can't model that it's just impossible so you have to come up with these proxies for it which are typically things like consumption, right? Like that, which in some context maybe makes some sense. If you have to measure something and you have to get, you know, a relative gauge of things, like it's, it's there may be some circumstances in which that's okay. And, and even then provided you caveat it very, very thoroughly, right? But if your absolute measure of like economic flourishing, let's say is just, well, how much are people consuming? Then the idea that you would fence off a piece of land as a park just to enjoy it that's like irrational or right. it might be even worse. It might be, it might be like, it, I'm not even sure what the right word would be. I'm, I'm sort of struggling with if it's even an economics thing or if it's like a, an ethical thing that they'd be implying It's like wrong or bad or something, or it, it it implies, you know, it's it's recessionary or something like that, like, you yeah. know, how dare people not be consuming when, you know, when they're just kind of strolling around a park doing nothing, but it's like, but again, obviously, as I think you mentioned this in your introductory comment too, Trent, that 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 isn't confusing to regular people, right? It's just, it's only so, confusing to a macroeconomist. You have to if, be
0: a well educated economist to be confused yes, by making stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> the
2: idea that people would enjoy parks and like also kind of not want to price them, that's, it makes perfect sense to me. And then it also makes perfect sense if, if your starting point is a more sensible one economically, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted a, a piece I was writing recently. I made the analogy that. Um, iPhone was the equivalent, uh, in the phone industry to what Bitcoin did for the, um, for the the world of, of money. And, um, and when, when you think about that, that's probably a very imperfect analogy, but, um, but there's an evolutionary scale here that things are changing and Bitcoin is changing as well. What, um what are some of the features and changes that you think bitcoin 20 years from now will have
0: that it doesn't have today
2: oh that's interesting yeah um, actually
0: can, can i can i piggyback on that because one of the mm-hmm. questions i was going to ask and I, I i didn't manage to dig it up in the book i was like leaping leaping through it but you, you talk about like financial instruments that might be possible with bitcoin mm-hmm. like uh i don't know you know what i'm talking about it's it's in the yeah i can touch on some of those yeah 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 just just what it makes possible how it will change what it makes possible
2: why so there's i think there's an important clarification here in that um i'm not sure which of these you meant but i'll just address both i think they're both interesting right so one way of interpreting this is uh how many more soft forks are there going to be basically um but then i guess the more expansive way is like what else will be built on bitcoin right which are which are slightly different the 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 soft fork one, uh, I mean, I don't think I'm remotely technically competent enough to to give a, an answer anybody should take seriously. Um, but I, I mean, I can see there being a, a few more worthwhile ones. I think the, the one that I'm probably the most sold on, um, which is probably just because of my connection to Blockstream, but is that eventually it would be nice if Simplicity made it in um, mm-hmm. as effectively, effectively a scripting language upgrade because so the way that um, I'm completely piggybacking on, on Adam back here, but the way that he often describes it is that if that were to happen, and I mean, as far as I understand it, that would be at least 10, 15 years away, but if it were to happen, it would be the last upgrade because you just wouldn't need anything after that. Because basically every, every protocol upgrade for a while now, the intention has been, well, what layer two or above does this now enable? Um, Like in terms of the actual functioning of of transferring bitcoins, I think it's been fine for a while, like almost everything has been geared towards um, more expressiveness that's like obviously useful, or maybe not obviously useful, but everybody agrees would be a good thing. That's kind of the general rule for whether you get a fork in the first place. So um, it's also kind of a cop out of an answer too, because it means not only does it, you know, after that happens, does it ossify, which is kind of desirable at some point anyway. Um, but you then get whatever you want and it's everybody else's. Like it's, it's every individual's problem in terms of what they want to try to build, right? So, okay, so that's that out of the way. I think that the more interesting one is the the expansive point about what can be built. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Trent, you mentioned some of the stuff we we went into in the book. I can go into more detail on that if you want, but like, honestly, my... I think the more important answer is like basically anything to do with money, like anything at all. The, the the idea of money becoming programmable I really don't think people outside of Bitcoin have, have kind of caught on to how important this is I I might even suggest that maybe a lot of people in inside a lot of bitcoiners themselves haven't really appreciated this yet because they because they haven't seen it right they still Bitcoin to them is basically just a savings instrument like an, an ultra long-term savings instrument um they probably still use uh not dollars necessarily but like a lot of fiat in their day-to-day life. Um, some beginners won't. I mean, if you're if you're either you know so deep in the weeds that you know maybe you work for a Bitcoin company and you've arranged your affairs such that you can, which which I am uh, pretty envious of. It's it's cool if you've ended up in that position. Then maybe you're a bit more involved and you 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 have more of a cause, I guess, to play with some of these kind of um, Bitcoin native financial primitives. I guess if you want to think of them that way. Um, and then obviously you know there'll be some people in. I guess just just countries or or uh, places jurisdictions etc where the inflation is so horrendous that actually Bitcoin seems better, but it seems significantly less volatile by by comparison. So they're nudged a bit further along. But I think the where where I'm going with all of this is I think most people by and large just really have no relevant experience of how how thoroughly Bitcoin will probably penetrate finance and how how finance will be. Rearchitected, uh, re-architected if you like around its native programmability and that's and had that's super duper exciting so th- i think that's a more important answer just like everything who knows <laughs> right i can now go into more more specific examples if you want
0: hello this is trent fowler co-host of the futurati podcast one of the most common pieces of marketing advice i've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future and anything else you want us to know we produce this show for you and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you.
1: Let let me mention um, we've had several discussions around the fact that, Oh, uh, there's an estimate that somewhere between four and 6 million Bitcoin have already been lost. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and when they're lost, they're gone. Um, And, and it's, it's conceivable that um, over the next thousand years that every remaining bitcoin will somehow have gotten lost along the way um yeah yeah, so is um so having having a feature uh, a recoverability a feature or uh process or something seems like that might be make good sense since we're dealing with a finite quantity of 21 million um and um and that that's a key part of the survivability over the long run uh, so I, what... I, I have
2: t- I have two responses to that. So one is that I would find that, I, I, I think I disagree. I don't think it's possible that all of it gets lost because the total amount is completely arbitrary anyway. What really matters at any point is how much you have of the total. And so say 20.9 million get lost and there's only 100,000 uh, yeah, it would still be Bitcoin. I'm just trying to do the math on the how, what that would be in Sats. I'm actually not sure, but there's only hundred thousand Bitcoin left. Then, if they're sufficiently distributed, then we just re-denominate everything, and that's fine. You, I think the the question about how much you need to lose isn't. It's not relevant what the number of Bitcoin is. It's relevant how many holders there are, and I can't. I just can't see that ever actually happening. I mean, it would, or if it could happen, it would have obviously failed well before then. It would be like, you know, BSV now where there's like two nodes or something and it goes down because someone hacks it or not hacks it. But like someone does a 51% attack for fun. Like, I think you need something like that before that were even possible. Um, There was another point, or maybe yeah. I was in, yeah, there so something else I wanted to say.
1: <laughs> you're, you're saying that we'll never have an FDIC for Bitcoin.
2: Oh yeah, no, no, I just yeah, I wanted to push back on that too because um so you said it would be better if it was recoverable. Well I don't know what that even means though. What does that what does that mean? Like you can you can undo transactions?
1: Um if something's been lost for I don't know, 20 years, 50 years, that somehow it goes back into the pool. Oh, I see.
2: Right. So what like it, it gets added to the Coinbase or something?
1: Um so yeah, that's I, one way you can handle Yeah, it. that's handle
2: kind of interesting. Um
0: but I figure
1: oh, no, if you could do that I, I
2: never heard that know, before
0: if you could do that, it seems to me like it would sort of undermine the fundamental value prop, you know, like if somebody could just sort of reverse those hmm. or pull them out, then it's like, well, I mean what if I'm saving it for a hundred years? What if it's in a trust, you know it's it's supposed to finance the
3: expansion of my house, you know
2: <laughs> right? yeah, yeah.
3: I think another factor here would be that the fewer they are, the more valuable they become as an in individual bitcoins so your incentive not to lose them becomes incredibly high. So I think the fewer they are, the less likely it is that you would lose them. I mean, it's very hypothetical. Uh, And also, I just wanted to add, maybe going back to the initial question around what financial products we might see developing on Bitcoin. I think an interesting way of answering that is what financial products we would see disappear. And I think that's Mm. also Mm -hmm. back to the question of um, what it enables because so so what you were saying, Alan, with basically we can do anything with money. I think some people listening to this might think. Okay, so does that look like hyper financialization? Does that look like
2: yeah, that's a good point. Yeah,
3: derivatives on derivatives on derivatives on on levered on, and then you have uh, some kind of swap, and 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 if this happens, then I exchange the interest rate on that. And no, that's that's not where this is going. I believe in a sense that we do talk about the fact that debt and many financial instruments are facilitated by having a. Uh, essentially bailout of last resort every time uh something goes wrong right if that's not on the table or it becomes much more difficult in the sense that governments would have to directly tax people to then uh do these bailouts rather than just do it uh with printing money you will see financial instruments probably become much simpler so I think there is mm. a sense in which they become more complex in the sense, not complex, they, they, be, they, they perhaps have more, um, you can build conditions, conditionality, you can build intelligence into those contracts, but that doesn't mean that they would become more fragile. Because for me, debt is about increasing fragility in the sense that you're saying, I will require a fixed payment in a world where nothing is fixed. And so what I have just done is I have made the rest of the world more volatile because I am asking my little share of the world to essentially be stable. And since I can't reduce stability uh instability in the overall system I'm just increasing instability in the rest of the system rather than my little part where I'm asking for debt to be really stable. So I'm just trying to think about implications broadly and I think that maybe conditional instruments that are also very resilient and more inclined to respond to the variability of the real environment and economy in which we live is perhaps a direction that we'll that we'll see going into
2: Mm. can I just add one thing to that actually just to make it uh even more tangible for people that and this is kind of funny given what uh Sasha my background is even though I've quit so I'm I'm in the clear now um (laughs) but there there will be significantly less Asset management for one. Um, I think probably not none. I think I think this is like I end up saying this for almost everything that I think Bitcoin's kind of uh paced to enormously disrupt. So, like debt, I probably make the same argument for debt. There'll be significantly less debt. There probably won't be none, but there'll be significantly less. But asset management in particular, uh, basically because an enormous amount of asset management is without, I think without anybody or certainly most of the people involved in you know the 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 little bubble in which they have a role right this is an enormously complex like interconnected industries it's basically impossible to see it as a whole right everyone only sees their tiny little silo um without them being aware really the the actual purpose that a lot of it is serving is just yield chasing right the the reason a lot of it exists is like I would argue probably the majority of it exists is because it's impossible for the end savers to actually save. There's very little mm-hmm. yep. sort of deliberate, kind of intentional direction of capital towards uh, risk-seeking enterprise like that th- that actually wants to be deployed. Right? It's sort of there's so many middlemen that all intention is lost and it's it's just self-serving in the end but it's, it's self serving in a particularly perverse way that is nonetheless justified because of inflation, right? You, you can't, you actually need this, right? You, you can't, if people just had to save on their own, they'd be even more screwed. So that I think that's kind of a good example of what Sasha was mentioning of, you know, what, what disappears is as interesting, if not more so than what emerges.
0: I know. I think that's all fascinating and it it does a really good job of sort of concretizing some of the discussion around how, the current financial system tends to shunt volatility to different places. It's almost like you've got a law of conservation of volatility. Yeah. And if you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you work really hard to to make this stable and predictable over the long term, well, that's got to go somewhere, right? And so other places become less predictable. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So a while back, I wrote a paper. Well, this is
1: actually in 2008. I wrote a paper called Fractal Transactions. And it's the, the idea that um, sometime in the future we'd have um, micropayments, even nano nanopayments, uh, available. And so if somebody buys a product, let, let's just take a book, for example. Somebody buys a book, the money that goes for that book would automatically get divvied up to... Part of it would go to the author, maybe 10% would go to the printer, maybe 2% would go to the editor, maybe 1% would go to the cover designer. And as, as so throughout the life of this product, every every time somebody makes a purchase, this money instantly flows to all of these, these people that contributed to this product. And uh, it's a vastly different way of thinking about things. And um, and uh, I, I just kind of wanted to get your reaction to something like that. Is that is that um, is that a possibility in the future with with Bitcoin or some of the other cryptocurrencies that we could actually achieve something like that?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think you there are places where you can see that already. I mean, that's that's very much where uh it's sort of taken on the moniker podcasting 2.0 is is going like this already exists um but i mean i agree that that's it's a very small niche and it's very kind of bitcoin centric at the moment um but the model seems pretty clear that yeah that's that's by far the the healthiest way or maybe not in absolute terms but of the options we have that is the healthiest way to align the incentives of everybody contributing to that kind of product and i think it's you can maybe even go a bit further and make a kind of, a, I guess, an ethical case to some extent that given that you can opt into there being a, a kind of transparency involved as well in terms of where the funds are going, that you would probably argue for anybody paying for it, they would prefer to see that that's where the money is going to. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yes, basically, I, I think I think that'll become much, much more widespread for sure.
1: In that in that type of situation, if if all of a sudden you have a billion people that are somehow tied to a financial model like this, and their their daily earnings are dependent upon uh, the flow of transactions, then it, it's easy to see how um, a payment system like this gets ingrained in society in a way unlike anything in the past. That this becomes kind of the heartbeat of uh, commerce, the heartbeat of of livelihood for so many people around the world,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah I, I absolutely think so. I, I mean, I think if anything, the the way you articulated it there is an even stronger point than something I remember we do say in the book at one point, which is it's a little bit more specific to lightning, and as was well my previous answer around podcasting, um but where we say that, uh, it, it's on course to uh, contribute to re-architecting the internet or the or the well the maybe the web more specifically but that that the web will be re-architected around lightning um but yeah i think that that you know the entire world <laughs> will be re-architected around bitcoin why not <laughs>
0: that's that's fantastic um i wanted to leave a little side here uh, uh, set aside a little time here at the end to ask some audience questions which i, I went to the bitcoin venetians uh, Chad said we're talking to Alan and Sasha what What do you guys want to know and, and uh, one of them asked for a response to a tweet uh, which actually I think Alan you did respond uh, to in oh, the thread okay. but but uh, so so you know you can just phone this in if, if you like so this is from Mike Brock you probably remember this he's a self described non Austrian Bitcoiner, and he says government can oh, yeah, still no, control- I, no
2: I don't know why he doesn't follow me it's very rude. <laughs> Mike follow Alan he's great I, I'm a reply guy I'm always there I mean maybe it's because I'm I'm usually annoying him but uh, anyway yeah what did he say
0: he said that uh government can still control the supply of credit in a hyper yeah, yeah, world. Yeah, I know this as long as government controls credit standards and leverage ratios for lending you're still in capital letters manipulating the money supply total money in an economy includes credit it's actually most of it your response uh, Dr. Farrington
2: yeah, I mean I I don't think there is a simple response. I think the reason that tweet is so interesting, the reason there's a gazillion replies to it and then the gazillion threads of their own that come from it is that he's touching on a lot of he's actually basically trolling everybody because he's touching on so many interesting things, all of which can be objected to, I suppose. But I, I I'm not I don't even think he's wrong. I don't think um I think maybe my perspective is slightly different. And I, I alluded to this earlier in the in this conversation, that I think there will be significantly less to the point of possibly negligible credit on a Bitcoin standard. And so even though he's right. he may just be right on a a kind of a technicality in a way that doesn't really matter in real life. I think there's another point that he doesn't mention as well, which is that, and it's surprising given where he works. I'm pretty sure he works at, I think he heads web five block. But anyway, that, um, that I don't think he's giving enough credit to, or maybe just doesn't believe it in the first place, the pressure on states, that bitcoin will eventually bring to bear such that they will have to start competing with each other uh, and probably there'll be a lot more of them will be and they will be smaller uh, that's a whole other i'm i'm kind of taking that for granted the audience will have to take that for granted now as well it's like chapter nine that's chapter nine read that um but if that's true then for that reason also this point is less relevant because any individual government trying to do that will be to a large extent shooting itself in the foot at least to to whatever extent those regulations around credit are simply not accepted by the market right if if the if the purpose of them is something like um i don't know just just um you know protecting consumers let's say and uh, facilitating a, a, a functioning market in the first place, something like that. It's basically what every regulation claims it's doing, and then hardly any of them ever actually do. Maybe then that will attract capital, and 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 then he'll be kind of right in uh, a little bit in in some specific corner. But if they mess it up at all, then not only because of that, the, what I just described in terms of you know, chapter nine, the pressure of Bitcoin has, but the fact that it's just natively digital, right? It's just capital flight is instant, like literally instant. It'll just leave right away. It'll go, it'll lend itself. Well, no, it won't lend itself, but people, its owners will redirect it to a more favorable jurisdiction. So for a whole bunch of reasons, I think that he's, um, no, he's right. But for a, a whole bunch of reasons, I think it probably doesn't matter that he's right.
0: So your, so your, so your reply is sure, comma, so what?
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's- <laughs>
3: <laughs> Another way of saying this is you may force this to happen, if it's not the right thing, eventually the system will break, and how will you bail it out? You're going to have to use force again, and all of it will have to be overt. Eventually, the system will learn that that's not a good idea. So you may still be doing things. I think one of the one of the pushback I commonly see is, yeah, but you know, if governments use force, this can still happen. I'm like, all right, yes, but at least we'll be learning from these events in a way that's not possible today so that the amount of force you need to use to continue goes up. The cost of it goes up every time because people understand that that's not a good idea. If you force some capital requirements that cause banks to fail or go bust every time and you constantly have to overtly tax your populace to bail, eventually you'll come to an understanding that's just not the right thing to do in a way that's not clear today because it's, it's hidden.
0: So so it almost – it removes the sneakier options that states have currently to finance things like yeah. bailouts. You can still
3: – you could still – if you're – you could be Keynesian. You could have a Keynesian system with a Bitcoin standard in the sense that you would need to tax your population, overtly say, okay, we're going to tax you. We're going to hold that in reserve, and when there is an economic downturn or something, we're going to be spending that. Okay, we're going to now counteract it. We've got coins in reserve, and boom, boom, we're spending here we go but when you run out of coins what are you going to do you're going to need to either get them through taxation through through violence like there's going to be some means through which you're going to acquire those coins and that's going to have to be open that's going to have to be something that people are able to see so there is no lying in a Bitcoin Mm. uh standard and that's what we're saying about communication you will have to be transparent right this is back to the Bible the truth will set you free in the sense that you will have to be honest with each other and we will therefore have the ability and the opportunity to learn from our interactions. And from that will come, hopefully, over time, uh, better systems, better ways of organizing each other. And if the right system is to have the government dictate what a capital requirement for banks is, we will figure that out. That will eventually come out through the uh, iterative process of trial and error. I don't think that's where we'll end up, but that could be it. I'm, I'm not going to claim I know what the end point of it is. I just say that I have an appreciation for the process we can get there is like that's that's the whole insight of capital and capital accumulation. Right. We've been talking about this whole time. So by having this honest
0: underlying monetary standard, then the experiments just have to be conducted in the open. It's almost like it's fairly an exact analogy. It's almost like pre-registering your results or your predictions for a study so you can't go back and gerrymander the data later or torture it to get it to say what you want it's like this is what we expect and if we don't get this we're wrong right and then you do the experiment and if and if you are right then you get more points than
2: otherwise exactly it's almost like mma one might say
0: well bitcoin is truth bitcoin is logos one might say um and then uh, another question I wanted to get to is, this came from probabilistically certain, which is his Twitter handle, he says that uh, Jeff Snyder has finally beaten me into submission somewhat regarding the global difficulties created by the dollar shortage. If the dollar shortage is real and problematic, what kind of issues would be created by a Bitcoin standard and how could they be addressed? I feel like some of this was contained in the prior answer.
2: I'm not entirely sure what the question means.
0: Well, so I, he, I wasn't either... he
2: referring to the fact <laughs> that basically everybody is short the dollar and and as a result of the dollar being the reserve currency is that what he's talking about
0: Uh, i that's how i read it too so right now you've got a a system where the dollar is the reserve currency of the world if there are dollar shortages that's really problematic and as we bitcoinize you could also get similar sorts of wrinkles because you know we're sort of presupposing the dollar is a really important pillar in the monetary order Mm -hmm. and as that gets displaced there could be issues what should we do about that sort of thing
2: oh sure yeah um I don't think I have a particularly good answer to this. I don't know, Sasha, do you want to jump in? I can just rattle stuff off the top of my head. Um
3: Yeah, I'm not sure I completely understand the question because when you say a shortage of dollar, that almost makes me think that the person implies there is a correct quantity of money that should be out there rather than just to say that as we as we said before, if twenty-one million bitcoins, if you lose half of them, does that mean that we're now short of coins like was 21 million the optimal amount no it's just about how you allocate the coins that you do have so it's been tempting throughout history for people to say we need more currency so we're going to have to print uh we're going to have to increase it's going to stimulate the economy whatever argument you want to use I don't believe that the quantity the absolute amount is what matters because you can denominate your price in whatever amount you want it could be a hundred times higher a thousand times higher thousand times lower doesn't matter so I I take issue with the premise that you would need a specific quantity but I need to dig into what that person meant because I'm not quite sure I really got the question
0: well it it may be sort of an artifact of the petrodollar system right so we, we you know set it up so that people have to denominate their oil in dollars and therefore people need dollars in order to purchase the oil which creates a lot of dollar demand but if there's not enough dollars in the system that creates problems and therefore, we've sort of run the structural trade deficit with all of Earth to make sure there are enough dollars in the system. Um, he never said any of that. I'm just sort of taking. I'm, I'm pattern matching. I'm just. Oh, so it that's. Oh well, yeah. there's a
2: name for that, right? Was it Triffin's paradox? Triffin dilemma. dilemma something. The Triffin dilemma. Yeah but so is the question just what happens when the tripping dilemma unwinds is that is that what he's getting at
0: well you could answer that and maybe that is what he wants (laughs) i don't actually know um
2: i think there's two completely different answers so one is uh i mean just to be really glib about it as it unwinds it's horrible but when it finally unwinds it's amazing that's probably that's like the gist (laughs) what any longer answer would be anyway uh no no seriously like i i've i've started making a point of saying this lately whenever Whenever I get asked something along the line, like a far more general version of this, like, how do you see the next X many years playing out? Like, it's going to be bad. Basically, probably shouldn't even be laughing as I say that, that one of the reasons that if not the the main reason, maybe not the only reason, but the main reason that I like Bitcoin so much is because I really, really dislike fiat. It's like, it's not it's not even so, well. I've said this a few times now, I should maybe get it on a t-shirt, right? It's like, not pro Bitcoin, anti-fiat. Um, but one of the problems, this is an, actually kind of a cute way of linking it back to exactly what we've been talking about, that uh, the exact reason I dislike At is its corrupting influence on not just capital but almost prior to that the ability to communicate and to understand reality right because all you may as well assume that all the information you have about it insofar as it is economic is just wrong in some way and that the way people are acting probably doesn't Actually, reveal their preferences because they're also acting on incorrect information, and it's all horribly reflexive and blah 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 blah. But what? So you can predict that that's going to lead somewhere really bad. But unfortunately, you also have to accept that if if you believe that, you have to accept that you can't predict. what that bad thing is going to be right like it could be anything it could happen at any time like sasha and i were actually we're, again maybe not joking i'm not sure we're laughing about it so much but like when the thing uh, in the uk with the guilts and the ldi and so on happened it's like well sure like yeah nobody knew about this until now but now yeah well of course that was going to happen but i mean everything everything that of course was going to happen nobody knew it was going to happen beforehand because nobody can like really see the truth basically none of the None of the actual, eh, this is actually, this may be quite a good slogan, right? None of the information is in the price. All the all the prices are wrong, which means the information you're inferring from them is also wrong. So, sorry, I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but, like, I have no idea exactly what's going to happen. I don't know exactly how the Triffin dilemma is going to unwind. I just think it will be extremely unpleasant, but it will be a good thing because we have Bitcoin. I think that's also an interesting contrast to make, that, and it fits in with my uh, not pro-Bitcoin so much as anti-fiat quite a bit as well, that uh it certainly won't unwind because of Bitcoin if anything the existence of Bitcoin might make it smoother because people can kind of exit one by one whereas if it were to happen on its own it would be you know it'd be like 2008 basically it would all come down at once
0: you can move as opposed to like trying to pull all your belongings out of a burning house right like it can be more yeah yeah yeah. stable and there's a similar analogy there it's like why do you lock your doors at night well I don't have a particular scenario in mind. It's just there's a wide variety of things that I don't want to happen. And therefore I, I lock my doors at night. It's not a particular one. It's just on general principle, you know, it's some basic mm-hmm. security. I can't predict anybody yeah, yeah, too. But yeah. but if you if, if you you know chronically take these risks, I can't tell you which time it will blow up on in your face, but eventually it will. Mm-hmm. So in light of all that, in light of the fact that you're not pro-Bitcoin, you're you're anti-fiat, do you have, uh, yeah, that, that should be the headline, <laughs> Alan Farrington comes out against Bitcoin. Um, what, uh, are, are there any criticisms? Yeah, I had a good run. <laughs> 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 are there, are there any, Bitcoin is awful, that's, that's, uh, totally <laughs> <all over>. Bitcoin <laughs> sucks, so yeah. Uh, do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success Are there any criticisms of Bitcoin that you find uh, particularly
2: compelling um, it, so it depends exactly what you mean I uh, not Criticisms exactly, but um uh I'm not even sure what else to call it, like reasons it might fail. Yes. I'm not sure there's any criticisms of Bitcoin I find at all compelling because they tend to be profoundly uninformed and like obviously political when once you dig into them. But there are a few. Um, I'm really not sure how to describe that difference. I don't know if someone wants to offer a like a good name for that. Um any ideas? <laughs> what, what would like you a, call that?
0: Like potential failure modes is against actual criticism. Yeah, failure mode.
2: That's a yeah. That's a, That's a good. Opinion. So there's one that I I usually say Joe Kelly's when we talk about this. Um, I'm I'm getting kind of bored of that though because it's um, it's nothing against Joe. It's just it's kind of uh, it's kind of mechanical. I guess it's basically that you know, fifty-one percent attacks are are easier than people assume, especially in a longer, longer, longer time horizon. I think that is credible. Um, I. I think I have a good answer to it but I won't go into that now because I want to mention what I think is a more interesting one right so this is due to uh Ben Hunt who on Twitter oh. goes by epsilon theory oh yeah uh, I'm sure some people will know who this is um yeah. he well no I think his handle is epsilon theory he he still uses his name Ben Hunt but he that comes from him being a contributor I think the founder of a really good blog called epsilon theory which epsilon I do theory. highly recommend it's nothing to do with bitcoin it's it's um it's just kind of finance commentary, but like highly contrarian finance commentary. So he he has this idea that and even here, to be clear, I don't think he thinks this is going to happen. I think he just thinks this is a danger that is underappreciated. And I think I agree that it is it is a danger and it is underappreciated and it is worth taking seriously that the state co-opts Bitcoin in such a way that they Trying to think exactly how to describe this. They nudge every non Bitcoiner onto a whitelisted version. And so, and, and they accompany this with relentless propaganda about how dangerous, you know, non government Bitcoin is. And then we end up in this position, which is weirdly similar to. And this is, I think, the scariest thing is that there's an obvious precedent for this, which is how everybody uses email, right? Mm-hmm. So you can run an SMTP server if you want, you set one up in your garage, whatever. Um, you know, do your own DNS, like, like actually run it all on your own. Uh, basically, nobody does. Almost everybody uses Google, Outlook. Uh, probably some people still use Yahoo, AOL, whatever, right? Um, and so I don't think there was ever like a big cultural movement around this, but, but there's a clear analogy to Bitcoin, right? In terms of like, oh, you got to run your own node and not your keys, not your coins and all that, that there could well have been people in, in like early email, or I guess more like early web commercialization who were really mad about this They're like, no, you gotta, you gotta run your own, like the whole point is this decentralized, you gotta do it yourself, but like nobody cares. Right, and in the end, everybody ends up on these massively centralized services. I think that could happen to Bitcoin because, but because it already happened, basically. <laughs> like it, I don't think. It, I also don't think it would have mattered at all how loudly. I don't think these people even existed. But if they did, I don't think it would have mattered how loudly they shouted because you know the state. And I also keep in mind. I think in the comparison, the historical comparison, it was just kind of an accident. It was like, you know. Um, market forces effectively whereas in this case i'm positing that it is literally a conspiracy right so there's a lot of intent going into misleading people around this and i'm pretty sure that like the us government for example could do a better propaganda campaign than bitcoin twitter could in response to it Mm -hmm. Um, and so yeah i think that's actually a a reasonably credible threat I think the only way to combat it. I think to, to be fair, I do also think it's unlikely because it requires a high degree of competence, like a far, far higher degree of competence than I think they have. Hence, we're in this position in the first place. Right. I don't think the probability is zero, though. I think it could happen. I think the way around it is education. I think it's I think actually having that in the back of my mind is why I think onboarding noobs basically uh, is super important and and far more so. In terms of understanding it rather than buying it necessarily. Obviously, you'd prefer if they bought it as well. You'd prefer if they ran a node, et cetera. Um, but getting actually accurate information to people as quickly as possible, I think, is the best defense against that.
3: We could draw an analogy with gold in a way. We had the gold standard. It's not mm. it's not practical carrying gold around. So we just left mm. it in the bank vault. Mm-hmm. And then we had paper money because that's a much more convenient interface. And eventually the gold disappeared that was behind it if there is a need for a more user-friendly interface in front of bitcoin for people to use there is a world in which that interface becomes the main way in which people think about money and then you just remove the back end eventually like we did with gold i think that's that's one uh mode of failure i can imagine another one that's perhaps uh In linked to what we've been discussing throughout this this podcast is how difficult it is to own up to truth. What if I told you you could not tell a lie for just a week? (laughs) You had to be completely honest with everyone you're interacting with. That's super difficult. I don't know if society is ready for that. No, but seriously, it is it is incredibly. It, I don't think people realize how important lies are sometimes to just just keeping things civil. And so, what happens if we are in a world where we're forced to be honest with each other? It's it, I can see I can see again some friction there on the way to learning the way in which we can then collaborate. Like there would still be difficult moments where we're all having to accept that we lied to each other and. It's completely blatant, and people are getting really angry. And then, what do you do? You have to resolve that. Bailouts would be a really interesting sort of moment. I mean, I think failure, like systemic failure of institutions, and and bailouts would become inc- much more politically difficult to uh, overcome. Like not just not just the, the the act of bailing something out, but just what we would need to reckon with as a society. And so what does that where does that leave us like that that could be a it's it's very meta um no not metaphorical it's uh it, it's perhaps a bit too theoretical and maybe maybe too grandiose but i think there is something about how much truth we can take and mm. therefore the speed at which we can adopt this i don't know um I'm, uh it, it's a it's it's one of the one of the sort of very long-term things that i i think about sometimes but it is very theoretical
0: it's almost like if you banned clothes for a week, it's like, there'd be a lot of pain as people like adjust to that reality and like get a little bit more sun and work out a little bit more. Like you've been concealing a lot under those sweaters, you know, for a while now and the pandemic way, like gotta get in shape again because people are going to see it.
3: Yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's fantastic guys. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave us with? No,
2: nah, just uh, the book's free in case the audience didn't know that. Uh, you can buy a physical copy if you want. I think Trent, you already showed that you had one, right? Um, But you can, uh, if you don't want it on dead trees, if you don't mind a digital copy, don't have to pay anything at all.
0: Fantastic. And where can people go to learn more about you two and your work?
2: Uh, it's probably just Twitter, really. That's that's fine. <laughs> Let's kind of coordinate everything through there.
1: Fantastic. Okay.
0: Well, thanks so much, guys. It's uh, It's been a long time in the making. I loved the book, loved all the ideas. The bit, the book club loved it as well. We had some great conversations out of it. So thanks for putting it together. Thanks for putting it out there. And uh, we appreciate your time.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks. All right.
1: Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.